Welcome back, my dears. I hope however that time was spent, there's a sense of just dropping in a little bit more into yourself, perhaps into the Sangha. As I mentioned before, we'll just move into um, (laughs) trouble with the camera. Um, Move into the sit. So again, I'm going to ask you to drop the gaze or close your eyes. And allow your body to come into a posture that allows you to feel comfortable and upright and alert. And this posture may be sitting, it may be lying down, whatever is going to be more nourishing for the body. But taking a moment just to, uh, it's a funny way of phrasing, kind of to locate yourself in your body in place. And noticing how your body is sitting or lying down or still standing and yourself in this body. Yeah. Leaning back into a sense of embodiment. Does that make sense? Occupying the back body, feeling the earth beneath you. Noticing what's supporting you, the cushion, the chair, the couch, the bed, the floor. Ultimately, the earth beneath each one of us. And again, this word keeps coming through for me as sort of locating ourselves in within this fathom-long form, which the Buddha said holds all the teachings. Locating ourselves in pla- in place. And for our anchor today, I want to encourage us to, as I mentioned in the arriving set, to keep a healthy percentage of our attention in the body. Perhaps again, noticing or feeling the sit bones on the chair or the cushion, couch. A felt sensation of, a felt sensation of the hands are holding each other or the weight of your body resting upon whatever you're sitting upon that's being supported. The weight of an arm or a hand on the leg. And maybe it's 50 or 60% of your attention is going to stay in the body, allowing there to be a sense of awareness of, oh yeah, (laughs) I'm inhabiting this animal body here. The movements of the breath, the pressures, the textures of this aliveness in the body. And with the other 40, 30, 40, 50%, I'm going to invite us to watch the patterning of the mind. I've said this so many times, but early in my retreat career, um, we used to do interviews the first day and John Travis had said to me, you know, when we take our seats, we watch the theater of our mind. And I've always loved that line. And so if we allow ourselves to get comfortable in this theater chair of our body, so to speak, and to watch the amazing unfolding of the mind and watching much like I mentioned in the arriving set with just an attitude of gentle curiosity In the mind, it's like this. We may notice habit patterns or thought patterns of comparing or judging or trying to figure something out, perseverating. The great Pali word of papancha, this sort of explosion of thoughts, thoughts begetting thoughts. And being able to maintain a sense of balance and equanimity grounded in the body and just watching again with this gentle curiosity of kind of left untrained, where does the mind go? Do we tend to follow the thought stream or the thought train of stories about our own lives or about other people? So I'm um, 
inviting there to be a, a wonderfully sweet curiosity. Oh, this is what happens in the mind. When I just allow myself to sit back, relax, almost enjoy the show. Of, oh, it's here and then it's there. And then it goes here. Again, arguing back to that image before of the mind, like the vast blue sky and clouds come through and there's a, a lifespan, right? The thoughts come in, they stay and they pass. And can we in our sit together here just be curious about this movement, momentum, patterning of thoughts that arise and pass away? thoughts in and of themselves are totally ephemeral there's no real substance to them the mind can be shameless and creative and repetitive and boring and dictatorial and all sorts of things yeah and by giving ourselves this great permission to just sort of sit back and watch oh This is curious. This is interesting. This is what the mind's doing without any judgment or any sense that it should be otherwise or free from any kind of scolding. I can't believe I'm thinking that. Okay, this too, this too. In this moment, the thinking mind is like this. Exhale. Okay. If it's helpful noting that maybe pleasant thoughts, they may be unpleasant thoughts. Okay. Again. Okay. We're nestling back into the theater chair, so to speak. And just watching, oh, it's this thought train. It's this thought I've had a thousand times. It's this conversation I'm replaying. It's this argument I'm having. It's this list making I'm doing. Please remember, there's no such thing as a bad sit. We come, we take our seats and... Sometimes it's more pleasant than others. Okay. Again, in as much as possible, kind of to lean into the support of the Sangha as we are stretched across time zone and state lines and borders. We are united here in this retreat of ours that meets week after week and to avail yourself of this support.
that's always so lovely to sit together. Um, yes, thank you for your practice. Echo Carlita. Um, happy New Year. I wanted to to have this first talk of the New Year. Um, focus not so much on resolutions and plans and aspirations for 2024 or naming what we want to leave behind in 23, but um, it's more born out of a, a conversation that I was watching at a conference um, on a video with a woman who wrote um, the book Infidels, um, whose name is uh, Ayan Hersi Ali. And she was speaking, but she grew up in Somalia, I believe. And um, I'll take myself off focus. And um, the, what was salient to me and what I wanted to expand upon today was her talking about how we locate ourselves through stories and that she grew up kind of one of the, um, the brotherhood of the Muslim belief, which is very strict. And sort of her worldview shaped by these stories told um, through this particular r- religious view, r- religious lens. And at some point, it, it, having such a uh, so not resonating, and that she chose sort of a different story, uh, a different story of a, a different lineage, a different um, heritage, a different worldview. And this notion of, of stories and how, again, we can locate ourselves through our like the literal ancestry, our lineal literal lineage of our ancestors, um, and in this in this conference, there's some also discussion about our disconnect from um, sort of if there ever really was a time, or if this is all just romanticized of sort of sitting around the table with our grandparents, hearing stories of their lives. And I was my parents were older when they had me, and I never knew any of my grandparents. And the sense of um, the cost, really, in some ways, that we bear when we are disconnected from uh, our sort of immediate ancestral lineage. And John Lockley, who wrote the book, The Way of the Leopard, um, who I did some work with him about, he's a white African who studied with the Zulu and uh, Zoxa tribes to become a healer in their traditions. And through his work and sort of growing up and being in the military, he was a um, Korean, studied Korean Zen very intensely and then went back to South Africa. And his work today is very much connecting um, Westerners, uh, many of whom sort of white, of white European descent to the sense of our ancestry. And again, the, keep, the word that keeps coming up for me today is sort of how, where do we locate ourselves? And for me, the practice of Buddhism and the, the the mythology and the stories of the Buddha and his enlightenment and his life and these teachings for me are very much a way that I locate myself. And um, it, this sort of was curious to me when I came. So the surgery I had was, um, I don't know anyone who's had surgery, I was sort of expecting this sort of long countdown to when the... Um, anesthesia wears off but it took like a second <laughs> i was just going to be saying meta to all the people that were doing work for me and within like a moment i was awake in in the recovery room but what i woke up to was the meta sutta and i don't say this in any way of bragging or anything in particular but just the awareness of oh that's a way that i locate myself and that these teachings are so uh for me uh but practical and helpful as a way of understanding both myself, how do I want to move? How can I move in a way that's most in alignment with what I value? And as we've spoken week after week about the teachings of the heart and the Brahma Viharas of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity and the the 12 perfections of the heart that we were together reviewed and explored in this fall of um, dana, generosity and integrity and wisdom, resolve, truthfulness, patience, um, our wise use of our energies, these ways that we can use the values, use these heart qualities, use these truths yeah, as ways of locating ourselves in a world that sometimes just seems like just so crazy and out of control. And um, 
that there's a way in which as we come together week after week, even those of you who are here for the first time, we are practicing um, embodying these stories, these truths. And I'm using those words, which is probably not accurate, but somewhat synonymously here, because in the, the three refuges, the triple gems, jewels of this practice are uh, the Dharma, uh, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And the Buddha taking refuge in the Buddha, the, the historical man that was Siddhartha, who perhaps through eons and lifetimes of practice was able to incarnate into the man who was able to put words to these practices that we are still utilizing 2,600 years later, taking refuge in the, in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma. And the way that's transcribed, it's in the truth. And again, in these teachings, the Buddha was very clear in the phrasing, Ikipasika, come check it out. See if this is true. See if these teachings, whether you hear them from me or from our masters and um, those teaching today and those that have come before us, do they work? Do they resonate? Are they helpful? Are they helpful? And it's such a great test. It's not so much bringing a cynical doubt of like, this is stupid or this doesn't work, but well, does it? Does this ease my way of navigating a life that is full of suffering and disappointments and challenges? You know, the first noble, noble truth, there's dukkha, there's suffering, there's disease, there's stress, there's dissatisfaction. Those are givens. Yeah. And how do we learn through our lives to be able to meet those disappointments, those challenges, those opportunities <laughs> for practice with as much grace or equanimity or compassion as possible? And then when we don't, when we meet them with a like, ah, I can't believe it. And all the, the fight that comes forth. Okay, can we meet that too? With a sense of, ah, okay, this too. This is how it is right now. Okay, it's unpleasant. There can be a railing against it, but we don't have to believe it. Yeah. And this ability we have, and every time I talk about it, I marvel at it, that we can, again, watch the thinking mind engage. Well, is this true? Is this story I'm telling me about myself, about my life? Is it helpful? Is it true? Is it useful? And Byron Katie's beautiful questions of, is this true? Is it really true? How do I know that it's true? And what if it wasn't? And I think in, uh, in the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu's book on joy, uh, the Dalai Lama writes about his practice that he begins at three o'clock in the morning. And I think the first hour of his practice is something very similar of his being able to review his thoughts and questioning, is this true? Based upon what? And how do we determine what truth is? And again, we're living in a time where <laughs> truth can be, <laughs> truth is loosely interpreted or it's slippery. And I don't want to veer into politics at all, but it's just that way of um we can have access to so many different sources that really whatever view I want to have, I can probably find something that's going to support me in believing it for better or for worse. And I think the way that both we're looking at a global view of how we move in the world, the views we have of the world at large, and I would argue more particularly our, our own views, the views we have of ourselves, whether we're still carrying uh, less than helpful views from childhood, the, our teacher told us we couldn't draw or the math teacher who told us we were stupid, um, to name but a few. <laughs> but sort of, you know, at what point do we put that down in the ways in which uh, the stories we inherit from our families, both about ourselves and about our our heritage, are worth examining kind of in, in the bright sunlight. Is this true? Is this accurate? Is it helpful? The other way, but is it limiting in some way? Is it um, fear-based? And how do we figure that out in the sense that we have within each of us this inner committee that has all kinds of voices and opinions and views, which are, are the worthy and trustworthy navigators or narrator, narrators of our lives? Well, then we run it through the body. Yeah. It, this, these different thought patterns that I was asking us to sit with or notice when we link it to a thought, a felt sense, with practice, we can often land of like oh yeah this is fear i can feel it because my heart the heart rate increases or my belly constricts or my i go like this you know and being able to start uh drawing the lines between uh perhaps the different committee members and what they say about us about our lives and the felt sense 
gives us these tools to start to understand for ourselves what's really true. True in the sense of the heart's deepest desire. I came across um, somewhat randomly, as we do, and playing around on the internet, um, this singer-songwriter who I had not heard of, her name was Carrie Newcomer, who I've since listened to, and music is lovely. Um, She was giving a commencement speech, and I want to read a little bit of it. Excuse me. Um, I'm so awkward with one hand, so bear with me. Um, This is just a little bit from her speech. It says, being true is not a destination you arrive at and stop. Being true is an unfolding process. You keep checking in with your heart to see if your inner life is in harmony with your outer circumstances. So that kind of continual turning back to the the wisdom of the heart and the wisdom of the body, I would add here too, that the great line of Basil van der Kolk's book, The Body Doesn't Lie. So how do we learn to attune to, to listen, to pay attention to the signals of the body that can say, hey, no, yes, we're on track, or no, um, let me continue this. You also have a true heart and true guide. Breathe deep and take time to listen. Your true heart can be trusted. Keep asking, how can I bring more of who I am and what I love into my daily life? And that these questions of, what do I love? What what nurtures me? What matters to me? These are um, guide. These questions are in of themselves guideposts, and a way of being able to listen to what the heart is le- yearning for, and in some way perhaps demanding. And when we can yield or surrender or listen to that wisdom, we can build a more congruent life. Which is not to say that everything works out and all the desires we have are fulfilled. And no, <laughs> that might happen, it might not. But there can be a greater sense of ease of, yeah, but I know that I'm living in a sense of alignment with what I know to be true about how I want to live. Coming back to her uh, speech, on the way to finding and honoring your true self, you can be guided by another simple but important practice. Be kind. Uh, in your life after college, you will decide not just what to do in the world, but who you want to be, who you do. You will do many things and mostly likely work in a variety of jobs, but in every circumstance, you will choose what kind of spirit you bring to your life and to your work. We talk a lot about love. We talk about love in songs and in movies and in spiritual communities. Love is big, and it's so big, and it's so wide, and sometimes you just can't get your arms around love, but kindness is love in human size. It's the country cousin to love. Kindness brings soup when you're sick. It hangs out in the kitchen washing dishes when no one asked it to. It opens the door when your hands are full and stops everything to listen to your story. It's not flashy or fancy or likely to make it to the front page. It's a small practice. It's so humble. It's easy to forget how profoundly powerful it is. Kindness lightens and softens our days. It reframes the world and expresses love on a human scale. I would also add in some ways it's sort of love into action. Yeah, these small acts of kindness. And I think for those of us, like when we're sick or having surgery, there's just such an, at least my experience, there's just an astonishing abundance of kindness from the, you know, person who drove me to the ER and all the folks at the ER and then at the surgery clinic. It was just astonishing. Um, And to be able to, um, both receive that and sort of feel in that flow of generosity and, and kindness. And again, it can be the smallest things, whether we are enacting them in ourselves or whether we're the recipient of to be able to orient towards this kindness can make such a difference. That one, the poem I read all the time of Naomi Shihab Nye, before we know kindness, we must know sorrow is the deepest thing. Yeah. And the vulnerability and tenderness comes through hardships and through those opportunities for practice like oh yeah right there's a tenderizing of the heart that happens and as we deepen into our practice and cultivate the wisdom the balance between wisdom and compassion which are said to be the two shores with which the river of our life flows there can be a deepening into oh yeah and orienting towards kindness and the inherent and immutable truth that's there yeah um from, there's a poem from Ellen Bass. 
um, bad things are going to happen. Bad things are going to happen. Your tomatoes will grow a fungus and your cat will get run over. Someone will leave the bag with the ice cream melting in the car and throw your blue cashmere sweater in the dryer. Your husband will sleep with a girl your daughter's age, her breasts spilling out of her blouse. Or your wife will remember she's a lesbian and leave you for the woman next door. The other cat, the one you never really liked, will contract a disease that requires you to pry open its feverish mouth for every four hours. Your parents will die. No matter how many vitamins you take, how many, how much Pilates, you will lose your keys, your hair, your money. If your daughter doesn't plug her heart into every live socket she passes, you'll come home to find your son has emptied the refrigerator, dragged to the curb, and called the used appliance store for a pickup. Drug money. There's a Buddhist story of a woman chased by a tiger when she comes to the cliff. She sees a sturdy vine and climbs her way down. But there's also a tiger below and two mice, one white, one black, scurrying out, and they begin to gnaw at the vine. At this point, she notices a wild strawberry growing from a crevice. She looks up, down at the mice, and then she eats the strawberry. So here's the view, the breeze, the pulse in your throat. Your wallet will be stolen. You'll get fat. You'll slip on bathroom piles in a, of a foreign hotel and crack your hip. You'll be lonely. Oh, taste how sweet and tart the red juice is, how the tiny seeds crunch between your teeth. And I love this poem, right? And the, it, the way she pulls in that story that's so well known about the strawberry and the tiger. And okay, what do we do? Bad things happen. It's not because we've necessarily done anything wrong or there's someone to blame. It's like, yeah, we incarnated into this human realm that has a lot of things that are great and has a lot of things that aren't so great. How do we want to respond? And I think one of the beautiful pieces of these teachings it is an invitation to we can respond with a truthfulness and the ferocity of the heart when we can step out from under all the chatter and the stories and the limiting beliefs and the default neural networks and all these ways that the mind can really limit us um keep us small scare us not that there's not enough things to be scared out in the world, but kind of the, what we do, what, as Sylvia writes in her book, happiness is an inside job, the sense of how do we cultivate from the inside a sense of our own truth of what we know to be true about ourselves. Um, from Rumi, be empty of worrying. Think of who created thought. Why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open, move outside the tangle of fear thinking. Live in silence, flow down and down into always widening rings of being. But that takes some work, yeah. There's a quote I'll paraphrase from D.H. Lawrence of um, a man is never happy doing what he truly loves, but to do so takes some diving. It takes some work. It takes sitting with the mind that is exhausting and annoying and often just beats us up or is just unpleasant. <laughs> that great line from Annie Lamont of my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. Yeah. And this week after week, as we sit together, it's cultivating our capacity to, okay, I'm going to sit with this. Yeah. And Sada, the Pali word for faith is also translated as, um, Trusting in the capacity to meet what comes. So I love this. That's the idea of faith. Faith in our capacity to meet what comes. To be able to have the wise response. To be able to be responsive. As opposed to reactive. Knowing at times we are going to be reactive. And then how do we respond to that? So we build in. Yeah, we're human. We're going to get stressed. We're going to get caught. We're going to get angry. We're going to... move from the prefrontal cortex into the limbic system and be reactive. Yep. We all will do that. Okay. We build that in. So then how do we respond to that? And by leaning again into these teachings of, yes, there's suffering. Unavoidable. There are causes for the suffering that tend to be around clinging, pushing away, wishing things were otherwise. There are ways to untangle ourselves from the the tangle of fear thinking or anxiety thinking. 
And the Buddha lays out this the eightfold path of if we orient towards wise view, wise thought, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise concentration, wise mindfulness, wise actions. These are guidelines and pathways to living a living a life of truth. And again, I'm holding truth, not in like factual knowledge in any way, but more what do we know to be true about ourselves and how we want to show up. Uh, there's a William Kittredge, who's this uh, Western writer out of Montana State, I think, um, has a, I forget where this is from, but he, he writes, we live in stories, but we are in stories. We do things because of what is called character. And our character is formed by the stories we learn to live in. We continuously use stories to hold up the mirror to ourselves. And I both love this and, and it's like, yeah, and sometimes that's the problem. Because we don't often examine our stories to say, is it true? You know, again, following Byron Gay, is it true? How do, is it really true? How do I know it's true? What if it wasn't true? But being able to also identify, well, what are the origins of the story? Is it something, oh, yeah, this is what my father always used to say to me. Do I want to keep carrying it? And that there are, through I have found through these practices, much like what we did this morning, of just sort of watching the thoughts, it gives us this phenomenal capacity to make choices. Is this thought I'm thinking onward leading? Is this thought I'm thinking 20,000 times a day stressing me out? Or is it leading me to a place of ease? That, that's the whole game. I, mean, I feel like for me, that is, that is the path of freedom to be able to be like, sweetie, no, I don't want to think that anymore. And being able to put up the roadblocks, which for me is, um, the, the meta phrases and the meta practices of saying, you know, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, it's sort of insert this, you know, if the mind, that neural network might want to go to varying ways I can be disparaging of myself or of others and be like, please, let's not think this, let's think this. And being able to present ourselves with opportunities, this thought line, this thought stream kind of sucks. Makes me feel, or if I'm like, blaming someone or getting caught in negativity ooh, it just feels bad and it's not always so easy as just flipping the switch i don't mean to suggest it is but sometimes even in moments we can catch it like well please don't think this <laughs> can we think something else and again this astonishing power to reorient the, the ship of the mind so to speak to be like we're going in this direction it might not always stick and we can revert back. Okay, but there can be moments of, I can think this other thing. Um, this is from Osho. There is music which has no sound. The soul is restless for such silent music. There is love in which the body is not. The soul longs for such unembodied love. There is truth which has no form. And the soul longs for this formless truth. Uh, so this is from Pema Chobrin in her book, When Things Fall Apart. The essence of life is that it's challenging. Sometimes it's sweet and sometimes it's bitter. Sometimes your body tenses and sometimes it relaxes or opens. Sometimes you have a headache and sometimes you feel 100% healthy. From an awakened perspective, trying to tie up all the loose ends and finally get it together is death. Because it involves rejecting a lot of your basic experience. There is something aggressive about that approach to life, trying to flatten all the rough spots and imperfections into a nice, smooth ride. And I would add to that, it's just impossible. We never get a nice, smooth ride. You might for a day <laughs> or a week or a stretch of time, but invariably the roughness is going to come or the waves are going to come or the flood's going to come or the earthquake or whatever, whether it's literal um, in the um, weather sense or just uh, in our own internal lives or in the lives of those we love, bumps come unavoidable. How do we want to meet them? For our, in our own interior world, when we can be so harsh on our, with ourselves or the stories that we can tell about ourselves that can be so limiting, be like, oh, sweetie, can we step out from under that particular thought, even just for a moment? from Audre Lorde coping. It has rained for five days running. 
The world is a round puddle of sunless water where small islands are only beginning to cope. A young boy in my garden is bailing out water from his flower patch. And when I ask him why, he tells me, young seeds that have not seen the sun forget, and they drown easily. So I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. And just allow your attention to come back into yourself as a lot of words. And I'm just going to ask a series of questions that you may let just repeat in your, in your mind and see what comes, what answers arise. What do you love? What do you love? Let's see what comes this. This is casting a very wide net. Yeah. And almost imagining the answers that come are like wildflowers popping up in this beautiful mountain meadow. What do you love? What matters to you? And just noticing. Maybe this sort of same couple things come. There may be a whole range of diverse things. It may be the most mundane smell of coffee in the morning, cinnamon stick, the faces of people we love, the sound of laughter. And I'm encouraging there to be a, a breath. It doesn't have to be anything grandiose. What do you love? What do I love? What matters to me? What really matters to me? Do I love? What matters to me? And if you were to string together the words or the images that came, what kind of narrative might this be? Or if you're more of a visual person, what would this mosaic look like? Is there a through line? Is there a story that forms, a narrative that forms around the shape of the things that you love? and the things that matter to you, the way of being in the world, not necessarily objects. What touches your heart? What truly touches your heart? How do you know when your heart is open? And, and the different answers that may come in these different questions, and is there a way to kind of gather them together almost as in a, a necklace you might wear or a collage you would put on the wall or a story that you could read to yourself every day? Is there a unifying thread? Can these answers, as collections, again, the words or images or felt senses, also form the ground upon which you walk, upon which you stand? These things I know to be true. These things that I love, these things that matter. the heart qualities, the ways I want to show up in the world for myself and for others. Can these be the truths that guide us, that support us and light our way through days that are dark and scary 
days that are luminous and bright. I'm going to stop there and thank you so much for your kind attention.